0: The search for life in our solar system. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. We're on the hunt for life outside our own planet. Are we alone in the universe is one of the fundamental questions in science and new technology like planetary robots and massive space-based telescopes are getting us closer and closer to finally having an answer. We'll hear from astrophysicist and science communicator Neil deGrasse Tyson about those efforts and why he's excited about getting an answer to that question soon. And we'll revisit a conversation with University of Florida astrobiologist Amy Williams about one Martian rover's decade on Mars and how curiosity is helping us answer that ultimate question. A look at the hunt for life on other worlds. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Is anybody out there? It's a question that drives our exploration throughout our solar system and beyond. Rovers and probes are surveying planets and moons of our solar system, and massive telescopes like JWST are peering deeper into our galaxy at other planets that could hold that answer. Astrophysicist and science communicator Neil deGrasse Tyson tackled the topic of the search for life in our universe, Last week at Orlando's Dr. Phillips Center, before his talk, we spoke about that question and why it's important to ask it in the first place. Neil, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for your interest.
0: Yeah, so so your upcoming lecture is, is on the search for life in, in the universe, and this is such a profound question. Um, I'm going to start with a, a simple question for you uh, that will have a very complex answer. Why is this so important? Why do we care?
1: Oh, I don't ever require that someone care about any of this. Uh, So, that implies that you must do this so that this other thing would be true. And that's not how, as an educator, I, I don't want you to have to learn something just because it's a requirement or because the society needs it. I want you to learn something because you are genuinely curious. And wouldn't you want to know if there was life on another planet of any kind, microbial or even, you know, as they say, little green men with antenna, I think you'd want to know. And 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 so there's certain questions that are so deeply embedded within us that I don't have to give a preamble and say, here's why you need to know the answer to this. Question. I'm not going to know. Don't you want to know if there's a multiverse? Don't you want to know where the atoms of your body came from? They're forged in stars. And that's how we learned that we are not poetically, we are... Well also poetically, but we are quite literally stardust, made in the universe. So we're not just in the universe, the universe is alive within us. Do, do I have to twist your arm to be curious about that fact? I, I hope not. And and <laughs> Not me, Neil. Not me. Oh, not you. No? Okay, <laughs> not not you. Not you. Okay.
0: I, and when it comes to the multiverse, I think ignorance is bliss for me. I don't, I don't need to know about that.
1: But, uh, you, you don't, you don't want to know if some alien kid in the basement has programmed you? Uh, <laughs> no, absolutely uh, as a, as not. one of the multiple verses?
0: <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, you know, when it comes to... This is this is a question that, that scientists have been asking and have been searching for for years and years and years. But we are at... An incredibly interesting time to be answering this question, right? I mean, there are so many possible solutions and and missions out there that are doing this. And we may get an answer quite soon, right? I mean, why is this such a golden age for answering this question?
1: So uh, I want to give you an unorthodox answer to that question, if I may. Um, I recently published a book. It's called Starry Messenger: Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. And one of the chapters is called exploration and discovery and what i do within that chapter the chapter is longer than what i will about to describe but in an important part of that chapter is going from the year 1870 to the year 2020 in 30 year increments okay that's what i do and i describe how people were living at the beginning of those 30 years and how people were living at the end of those 30 years and it is so different That nobody saw it coming at the beginning of those thirty-year periods. Nobody. What's going on in 1870? Well, the railroad is crossing the country, and oh my gosh, look at and the Orient Express and the okay, yeah, we're going good, okay. And what happens by by you enter the 1900s? You know, in 1903, the airplane is invented, and by 1915. You can't give away a horse. We built civilization on the literal and figurative backs of horses for thousands of years. And within a 20 year period between 1900 and 1920, you can't give away a horse. The automobile has replaced it. The airplane has. So the pace of change has been high and exponential. So my point to you is when you live on an exponential curve, no matter where you join that curve, it feels like you're living in special times. I'm gonna say something that sounds contradictory, but it's it's I mean it. It's 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 true, you're not living in special times. It's all special. It's always been special. People said, look at these images from the James Webb. Isn't that amazing? Wow, how, what we're in the glory age of this. that's what everybody was saying when the first Hubble pictures came in. Because they were that much better than anything that came before it. That's what it is to be on an exponential growth. That's what it means.
0: Let's reflect on that moment, the special moment in time that we are in now, with some of the things that are out there looking for signs of life in the universe. There's Mars rovers. There's telescopes looking at exoplanets. I mean, just reflect on the technological advancements that are happening right now that are getting us close to this answer
1: so there's also missions on the books looking for funding to visit europa
0: one mm-hmm. of the
1: moons of jupiter that has an icy outer surface beneath it all evidence shows is a moon-wide ocean of liquid water likely with more water than is all the oceans of earth and we know on earth we're feel confident on earth that life began in our oceans and so oh by the way europa is outside the goldilocks zone so the whole moon should be completely frozen it's too far from the sun for the sun to warm it but it's liquid inside so something else is warming it and it's the gravitational stress imparted upon it by jupiter and other surrounding moons tugging on it in our you're in my biology textbooks it said life needs Sunlight, okay, trying to define it. Maybe it doesn't need sunlight, maybe it just needs energy, no matter where that energy can be found. So you combine all of these efforts uh-huh. to search for life in our backyard, just in our own solar system, not only on Mars, but is there life in Venus's atmosphere? That was a good one. Uh-huh. Uh, is there life at like I said, in the, the moons of Jupiter or on planets orbiting around other stars? Yes. These are the exoplanet searches that we're doing. So we're, we're trying to find life every which way it could possibly reveal itself to us. And what might this
0: life look like? I, I know with, you know, the we talked about microbes and, and little green men. It's more certainly going to or, or more likely going to be something like microbes or, or evidence of, of possibly being signs of life. Is that going to be a massive disappointment for, for,
1: <laughs> for everybody? What is life going to look like? Any life. It'll be a disappointment to science fiction writers, but to biologists. Oh, my gosh. Life of any kind. You want to say, well, how does it encode its identity? Is DNA something fundamental? Or did that happen only here on Earth? And there are other questions. On Earth, DNA is right-handed. It's the way the DNA double helix turns. It it turns sort of, how do I describe that? If you look at it from the bottom, it turns clockwise. It spirals up clockwise. There are, There's no life on Earth where the DNA spirals the other direction yet all the chemistry is identical. So why not? Is there some mystery of life that we don't know about that favors one handedness versus another? We'll talk about all this in 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 the talk. But this is this are the things you have to ask to be mm-hmm. very honest about your search for life. So, uh, are you asking me, uh, it'll probably be microbes is that cuz you don't want it to be something more intelligent than us? I I am afraid of it being something more intelligent than us. <laughs> That's so honest. I love your honesty. Oh, my gosh. So, but biologically, it would be just as exciting, practically almost as exciting to find microbes as to find complex intelligent life to the biologist. To the science fiction writer and to the public, yeah, we want... You know, we want ray guns and flying saucers. That's what we really want. <laughs> we keep imagining them. We keep thinking we're seeing them. We keep <laughs> any fuzzy image ever obtained is interpreted as an alien vessel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I, yeah, but, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be disappointed. I'd be delighted.
0: And I, I know you will, and I will too. But I mean, both as as communicators, we, we talk to the general public a lot, and I especially feel after, and I, I can see it right behind you, an image from the JWST, the the Webb Space Telescope. We're conditioned to these, you know, gee whiz discoveries, these these brilliant images. Um, And if scientists come back and say, hey, we found this, uh, you know, this piece of bacteria on another planet, is that going to be a disappointment to the general public?
1: I'm going to disagree. I think you're underestimating the public. Here's why. By the way, there's nothing more amazing in concept than a black hole, right? Well, maybe, but that's that's high up on the list. Anybody's top 10 would be black holes. We recently showed a picture of a black hole, right? What did it look like? A black hole. It was, <laughs> nothing. It, was, just, it was, there was nothing there. It was like, it was black. All right. So or, so it was the idea that we captured a black hole on film. And what we're really seeing is the focused light in the, in the warped fabric of the space-time continuum in its vicinity. So you're seeing its effect on its environment. But you're not seeing the black hole because it's black, all right. So the idea that, but so I, I think we're capable of embracing ideas. The first exoplanet, what it is, was discovered in 1995. By the way, what year were you born? 87. 1987. 87. Okay. So uh, do you have kids? You, you get- no kids. No kids. Okay. So any kids born in 1995 or thereafter? Okay. I always go around and I want to knight them as Generation X planet (laughs) okay because that was the year the first exoplanet was discovered and how was it discovered by the doppler shift of the host star jiggling back and forth in response to the gravity of the planet there was not a picture of the planet we couldn't show it to you and the data was spectra there was no pretty picture accompanying it but it was banner headlines i don't think I don't think amazing photos are a prerequisite both positively and negatively the day it's announced that we discovered microbial life, mm-hmm. alien microbial life. Oh my gosh.
0: This cynical journalist will trust the optimistic scientist on this one, Neil. So I will, I'm, I'm very happy that you say that, but let me give you the, the last word here. Neil, will, will that discovery come in our lifetime?
1: Okay. I think in our lifetime and you'll live longer than I will, uh, in our lifetime, we will know for sure whether there's life elsewhere in our solar system. We would have checked all the hotspots for where we would ever possibly imagine or expect life to be. And we will either find it or evidence of life from long ago, possibly in the subsoils of Mars, uh, or not. So that's important. To So for me, a, a null answer is that's progress. It's like, okay, we're done looking for life in our own solar system. Let's redouble the effort to other star systems, other exoplanets. So I think in our lifetime, we'll know one way or another about our backyard.
0: That was Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist and science communicator. He's also the host of the podcast Star Talk. Still to come, how one rover has spent the past decade on Mars, helping us uncover signs of life on other worlds. Our conversation continues after the break here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're talking about searching for life in our solar system and beyond. And for more than 10 years, NASA's Curiosity rover has been exploring the geology of Mars, hoping to answer that question, specifically an area called Gale Crater. Curiosity builds upon the scientific and engineering knowledge of the previous Red Planet Rovers and aims to help us answer key questions about life outside our own world. So what has Curiosity learned, and what's ahead after a decade of discovery so far? We spoke with Amy Williams, an assistant professor of geology at the University of Florida and a member of the Curiosity Rovers science team back in August on what was the 10-year anniversary of Curiosity's landing. Amy, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks so much for inviting me back. It's always a joy to be on the show.
0: Uh, it's always great to have you back on the show to talk about Mars, especially when we're celebrating 10 years of discovery uh, with the Curiosity rover. As I mentioned, it landed a decade ago. Let's let's step back 10 years. Why was this rover so different from any others that we sent to Mars?
2: Really excellent question. Um, so Curiosity was sort of the next generation of Mars rovers, Um prior to Curiosity, we had the Mars Exploration Rovers Spirit and Opportunity, um, which really raised the the benchmark for for what we could do on Mars with robotic exploration. Um, you know, even previous to them, Sojourner demonstrated that you could drive a rover on Mars, um, the exploration rover's spirit and opportunity were able to find extensive evidence for water on Mars. And um, they actually, you know, greatly exceeded their timelines uh, for how long we thought those missions could run. So we, you know, they were, had three-month prime missions and they went for years, <laughs> in, in one case, over a decade. And so with Curiosity, um, I believe that the, the, so the name for it is Mars Science Lab. But I think that MSL originally stood for Mars Smart Lab because the the point was that you could put an entire analytical chemistry suite um, on a rover and send it to Mars. And the real challenge was getting uh, a vehicle big enough that you could put those instruments on and then building a landing system that could accommodate such a large vehicle.
0: Mm -hmm. So the thought process, Amy, was, you know, back then there wasn't this idea that we could immediately get samples back to Earth? So because we didn't have that capability, let's just bring the lab to Mars. And that's that's kind of the biggest difference between these, right? Is that you're bringing an app like a chemistry lab to the surface of Mars, which, as you alluded to, was very difficult, wasn't it?
2: Absolutely. yeah. yeah. if you if you can't bring the rocks, you know, to our labs and the lab to Mars, absolutely. And um I think that lessons learned from Curiosity have really fed into future Mars missions and and current missions as well, that those lessons learned have been just so integral to designing missions that can address our our most fundamental questions about Mars.
0: And what was some of the equipment that was on board that, that helped? kind of uncover that.
2: So Curiosity has this really fantastic instrument suite that's still functioning today, 10 years later. Um, So we have uh, several camera systems that enable us to take sort of landscape images, as well as really up close and personal, sort of almost hand lens uh, scale pictures of rocks and soils. Um, We have several chemistry instruments, um, including the KimCam, which has the uh, laser, everyone sort of like envisions uh, this, this laser shooting out of this rover. Um, we have the, the SAM instruments, which can detect organic carbon. It can measure the isotopes of a variety of um, uh, stable isotope systems. Um, it can do a bunch of stuff. And then we have uh, also the Kemen instrument, which could evaluate the mineralogy of the, the rocks that we're exploring, as well as um, other instruments that that are able to um, assess um, the, the weather and climate. We have RAD, we have REMS. Um, so we have all of these, this sort of complementary suite. So it's not just chemistry necessarily, but sort of all the instruments you need to answer that question of was this environment habitable in in the ancient past? Mm-hmm. And
0: and this might be a very difficult question for you to answer, Amy. But what are some of the most interesting or intriguing findings that Curiosity has found over these past ten years? Can you yeah, can you even okay. identify a few?
2: Can I? Yeah. Can I list this and take up your whole podcast? Yes. <laughs> um, if I have to narrow it down, um, I would say that the the fact that we have identified habitable environments in Gale Crater, which is Curiosity's um, exploration region. Habitable environments, places where life would want to live um, if life had ever arisen. And not only were they habitable, but they were so over relatively long geologic time periods. We're talking millions to tens of millions of years. Um, And what's so intriguing about Mars is that the time period in which Mars was habitable was... Um, very early on and and seemingly similar to the time when life arose on Earth. And so that question, it just sticks with us, whether life could have arisen on Mars. And sending Curiosity was that first big step in assessing, is there a way to, to identify an environment where that life would live? And, and Curiosity has done it again and again um, over these past 10 years. I have
0: to just kind of reiterate how kind of mind-boggling this is. I mean, scientists... And engineers put a you know, vehicle-sized rover on another planet and discovered places that life could once want to have lived in. I mean, that is mind-bogglingly awesome, isn't it?
2: I think it's one of those things that you hear it and, and you start to accept it just as fact. And, and even as a member of the science team, I have to stop myself and think like, we're doing this on Mars, and we're doing it right now. I mean every day we're doing operations with curiosity and and with the next Mars rover perseverance we're doing daily rover operations, asking these questions and and not only getting new answers but of course it always opens the door to additional questions are are you know our our questions are never uh, answered in full only because new questions arise as we learn more and more about the surface of Mars.
0: you mentioned that. Curiosity's the, the prequel to Curiosity. These rovers that came before it uh, far outlasted their anticipated time uh, on the red planet. Um, I'm wondering what limitations are there on Curiosity? What's powering Curiosity and, and how much time could it have left?
2: Oh yes, that's that's always the sixty four thousand dollar question, right? So okay. it is with inflation. Is that higher now? I think it might be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 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 yeah. So the the Mer rovers, you know, they're they they were solar powered. So um, it was sort of a limitation of charging up those batteries and not having dust accumulate on the solar panels and limit their lifespans. And that's actually the challenge that the Insight lander has faced: not being able to clear those dust panels. So in in that line of lessons learned from sending missions to Mars, um, in order to power such a, an advanced instrument suite on Curiosity, and the same with Perseverance, um, instead of solar panels, we actually use an RTG, so a radionuclide-powered energy source that charges up the batteries. Um, so this means you have way more energy at the beginning of the mission, but the whole point is that the the power source decays over time. That's how it generates energy. So you do eventually reach a point where you can't heat the the you know survival heaters you can't not only can you not do science but you eventually just can't even move anymore. So there are finite lifespans uh, to these missions but um, a lot of it's based on modeling about how long we think we can go we've become very efficient at using our batteries and so I would say that um, you know curiosity's prime mission oh was like a, a one Mars year so two earth years and we've just hit, um, Ten Earth years, so we've far exceeded our our prime mission. Um, we still have a lot in the in the tank to keep going, and so when when will be the end? We don't quite know. But the really exciting news is that we we still have a ton in the tank to keep exploring Gale Crater.
0: Curiosity has another robotic explorer on Mars right now. Perseverance. We talked a little bit about this at the start of the conversation, but. What lessons have we learned from from curiosity, and how are those being applied to this new rover and maybe the next rovers to come after perseverance?
2: Yes, absolutely. So um, you know, curiosity was the first time that we used the sky crane landing system to land such a large vehicle on Mars. And you have to, to step back and think about how really terrifying it was for the science and engineering teams to watch the landing because it's totally autonomous. Um, it is all with the onboard computers and it knows what it's supposed to do. And it had never been tried from start to finish before with Curiosity. The first time we tested the whole thing end to end was landing on Mars. And so, um, you know, of course the, the system worked beautifully. We landed Curiosity and, and we used the same system then to land Perseverance, um, you know, a a decade later almost. And, it is easy to, to say, yes, we've done this before, so we're good, so let's just land this rover and, and get moving. But you really have to step back and take into account the incredible engineering that went into building a delivery system like the sky crane to land such a massive vehicle. So some of the things that have changed, um, especially with the landing system, is that we've actually been improving our ability to um, land um, with, with great precision. And so... When Perseverance went to land on Mars, it actually had um, uh, in its computer system on board the ability to look at the ground surface, compare with the maps in its database, and direct itself to land uh, in in a, a far more precise area than than the abilities that Curiosity had. So it's really um, awesome to see how our precision landing is is improving, and this will be useful, of course, with future landers and rovers and um, You know, presumably when we send humans to Mars, these kinds of technologies can be leveraged. When it comes to
0: the science goals of Perseverance, um, is there any difference in in what Curiosity is doing and what Perseverance is doing in terms of its scientific discovery? What's the difference between the two?
2: Yes, this is a really great way to to uh, sort of demonstrate the the concept of standing on the shoulders of giants to accomplish your goals. So the mer rovers looked for evidence of water. Curiosity looked for evidence of habitable environments um, where life would want to live. And then perseverance is actually looking for the rocks that could contain evidence for ancient life. Um, So perseverance is exploring Jezero crater. It is um, collecting samples not only analyzing samples on the surface, but its purpose is collecting samples for eventual return to Earth. And that is sort of the, the really big difference in that you know, we're planning to return a subset of these cores to Earth with the Mars sample return architecture. So we're not just identifying and characterizing environments on, on Mars just in situ, but performing some of those activities with perseverance with the intent to return samples for us to then kind of marry both worlds of send the lab to Mars, but then bring the rocks back to our terrestrial labs to really ask those deep questions about whether there was life on Mars, how Earth and Mars diverged so much in their evolution as planets. All of these really profound and and deep questions that we're just starting to scratch the surface of.
0: We've been speaking with Amy Williams, an assistant professor of geology at the University of Florida and a member of the Curiosity Rover Science team, as well as Perseverance as well. But we're talking about Curiosity today, so Yeah, we are. Amy, thanks so much for joining us once again.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That conversation first aired August 16th. Well, that's gonna do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR1, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Script editing from Nicole Darden Creston. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.